So uh, at our house, we have a cabinets, and that's not so bad in and of themselves. Uh, and we have games inside those cabinets and puzzles with many, many pieces. You know, those 100-piece, 1,000-piece puzzle sets. And so, yeah, normally it's a good thing if you don't have children. But if your children break into those cabinets, all those pieces are scattering all over the ground. And Abigail and Kenny, my kids, regularly partake in that activity when we're not watching them. You know, if I'm on taking a phone call, Laura's making something or doing something, that we go into our living room and there's just like a cornucopia spread of board games and pieces that would that you see it and you just have like an immediate anxiety attack. Like, oh great, I'm if they don't pick this up, I'm picking this up for the rest of the day. And so yeah, to say it's a pain in the neck is, is just, that's the uh, understatement of the century right there. And so oftentimes we'll catch them and then what we'll do is, as a punishment, or a, a sort of punishment, is we will have them uh, pick it up and we'll put them on a timer. You know, like, they mess it up in 15 minutes. In 15 minutes, they're able to spread everything across this whole living room. And it's, it's great when you want to invite church people over, too. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so, I, so I, we put them on a timer. We say, okay, Kenny, you got to pick up this board game in 20 minutes. You know, we're setting the bar pretty low here, okay? And so we, we, use, we, we use additional forms of motivation to get them to pick up because they won't always do it. We'll say things, okay, if you clean this up, what you get to do is you get to watch a show for a little bit. Um, but if you, if you don't pick this up, we're going to discipline you. We're going to punish you. And the reason why we have to go that far is because Kenny, though he found it so easy to spread all the pieces all over the ground, all of a sudden we ask him to pick it up. Each piece is like a thousand pounds. He's like acting. I and mean, he, he could be the next actor, right? Just like putting it in, you know, he is, oh. <laughs> he has this whole routine in bed. It's so heavy. I'm so tired. It's like, yeah, you weren't tired messing this whole thing up, right? And so often what we have to do with Kenny is he won't listen even on a timer. And even though we tell him if you, you get candy, if you do this, you get, you get TV, if you do this, he will just lay, you know, on the ground with his face down on the carpet. It's his only defense, really. He'll just lay down, like, oh, I'm so tired, you know, all dramatic. And so we'll say, okay, you know, you didn't do it in 20 minutes, you know, and so we'll, we'll, we'll discipline him, we'll, we'll punish him. Now, after his punishment, he's either not going to do anything at all, and so he just stays up in his room, or, you know, he'll try to come down and get the rest so we can get his reward. What Kenny will never, ever, ever do is after we punish him, he'll say, okay, well, you punished me now, so can I watch TV? Can I get a reward? Because even a little kid knows on the, in the inside, he knows that in order to get a reward, in order to get something good, he's got to have to do something to get it. It's not enough for him to be punished for not doing it. He has to do something he, to, to get this reward, to merit it. He has to do something to get righteous and get this reward. And so God has written it on our minds and our hearts that punishment for our sins is not enough. We have to do something. It's on us. It's an obligation us. We have to do something more in order to be right before God, in order to be righteous. And so there's a real difference between, and I'm going to tie this into grace and faith in a second, but there's a real difference between being innocent on one hand and being righteous on the other. Innocent just means you don't deserve to be punished. But it doesn't say anything at all about whether you're worthy for a reward of sorts. Righteousness on the hand requires that you do something to get a reward. That's what it is. You're worthy of merit when you are righteous. You're worthy of reward. And so what is the greatest reward ever for human beings? 
how God has made us, to know him, to have eternal life, heaven, being in communion with the greatest, most pure, wonderful being, the true God of the universe. That is the greatest good, the greatest reward for us as his creatures. And oftentimes we as Christians think, okay, uh, what I need to do to have a relationship with God is just sins forgiven and then I'm good to go. But salvation is more than just the forgiveness of your sins. And don't get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. It is absolutely essential for you to be saved, to have all your sins forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross. The cross is so important, so foundational for our church. That's why we're having Josh and Johnny come together to, to do our Good Friday service, 6.30 at Friday. See, there we go. Get a plug in there for the sermon. So we, we take the forgiveness of sins and the death of the cross of Jesus very seriously here. It's essential and foundational for our salvation. But the question I would ask is, if you get all your sins forgiven... Are you righteous or are you innocent? Well, you're, you're just innocent. You've been cleared of all the charges. Like, think of this in a court of law, right? And they, when they say not guilty over somebody, that doesn't, doesn't mean that they get a reward. It just means they're not going to get punished. You know, they're, they're off the hook for doing something wrong. It doesn't mean they've done something good. They just got out of trouble. But in order to get a reward, you must do something good. And that's the greatest reward for us as, as believers, as those who are creating God's image creatures, is to know God. And so heaven must be earned. It must be won by you. It must be earned by you or somebody else and we're really hoping it's somebody else because the standards are pretty high here as we look at luke 10:25 uh, through 28 just briefly this is not just the view of me that heaven has to be earned by you or somebody else it's a view of jesus jesus christ taught in order to get into heaven you, there that you or somebody else has to do something you have to merit or earn heaven luke 10:25 through 28 and behold, a lawyer stood up to, the, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we're talking about having eternal life relationship, communion with God here. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord God with all of your heart. Not some of your heart. Not like a little bit of striving all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Do this. Saying not do it. He's saying do this and you will live. The live there he's talking about is, of course, eternal life. Now, you start thinking about this. Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength this morning? No, you can't even do that for a minute, 10 minutes, let alone 10 minutes. We are not loving God with all that we are. Because every time we sin, we're not doing that. So we can't earn it. So we're, so we're like, you know, oh, what's going on here? And Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, if, if anybody thinks they're perfect, I always say, talk to your spouse, see how that goes. They won't think you're perfect. Everybody knows deep down inside, you are not perfect. So then why does Jesus say these things to us? Why does he put these things? Well, Jesus is presenting a standard to us to show us that we can't keep that standard. Well, you're going, okay, why would he do that? Well, you're doing it to prove a point. It's like if an eight-year-old's like mad at his parents, you know, I won't let me play enough video games or do this, so I want to move out. And the dad's like, oh, you want to move out? Well, you got to pay rent. 
You gotta, you gotta get a car, you gotta pay for you know, a cell phone bill. And he starts adding up all these things and the kid's like, yeah, I can't do that, I'm stuck here with my dad, right? And so in order for that kid to live, he's gotta depend on his father, he has to. And so for, in order for us to have eternal life, we can't do it on our own because we sin every 10 minutes. We don't love God with all that we are. We are dependent on Jesus to accomplish that for us. And that's the good news of Romans chapter five this morning. The good news of Romans chapter 5 is that righteousness is not something we achieve, but it's something we, we receive. It is impossible for us to do it. And so what God requires of us, perfect perpetual obedience, loving him, he's a perfect being, it's a perfect standard, loving him with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We, what, that's what God requires of us to have eternal life. What God requires is provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's good news especially for you and me, for everybody. So let's see this in our verse-by-verse -verse study of Romans 5, starting at verse 16 here, as we dig through our text and look at how amazing God's Word is. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So Adam's sin brings in condemnation for the entire human race. On the other hand, Christ's perfect life brings justification. I'm like, what does that word mean? Justification. Some say just as if you've never sinned. Well, that's true, but it's more than that. It's fulfilling a legal requirement. It's doing something. It's, it's, it's righteousness given to you. So here he is saying, we get righteousness as a gift. You earn a paycheck. You don't earn a gift. You, you only receive a gift. If you're earning a gift, it's not really a gift anymore. And that's what he says in actually the next verse. He says, this is something we receive. Look at Romans 5, 17. For if because of a one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, this is Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift. So if you receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you see, death was brought in by Adam and life was given through Christ, but it's only to those who would receive it. So there's an outline difference here between Adam and Christ, you know, one man bringing this and one man bringing that, but one is to the entire human race, one is received, and they're receiving that gift of grace brings us eternal life. And so this is not given to every single person, but those who would receive it. And this is how Paul describes this act of reception. Like, well, how do I receive it, Nate? Do I have to snap my fingers three times? How do I get this? Well, Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, how we receive it. It says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. We just receive it by faith, by trusting in Jesus. Not a result of works, not by striving, achieving, and doing. Uh, so that no one may boast. So God gets the glory, not us. And what's amazing about this passage, and we can, you know, we're reading the Bible, you know, if you're doing your Bible reading and you try to do one chapter a day, sometimes, be honest, you're kind of speeding through it and you miss things. I do it all the time. But what's amazing here is the Greek word, you don't want to miss this, the Bible was written in Koine Greek. The Greek word here for abundance means a surplus of grace, tons of grace. It can mean an ex like an excessive amount of grace, like excess grace that you get. It means tons and tons, so you get tons and tons of grace. And trust me, you and I need that. And I have heard so many people say, who's heard this? God is a God of second chances. Who's heard someone say that before? One person. 
three people, five, five, it's going up, okay. I found out last Sunday when I asked you guys about a football player, if you guys knew him, uh, that only one person raised their hand, but I found out there was more of you who didn't offer up your hand. So I know that we've heard that God is a God of second chances. But that's not true, because you and I need a lot more than a second chance. That's not what excess grace is, not just like, okay, you get two chances, you're, you're done. No, excess grace is a chance. Again, there's another chance, another chance, another chance, and another chance. That's what the Greek language indi indicates by excess grace. It's grace on top of grace. And so, yeah, you and I need a lot more than a second chance. And in Jesus, we get excess grace. We get tons and tons of grace. Now that is really, really good news. And of course, gospel means good news. Paul continues on in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass, focus on that one there for a second, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And so when we're thinking of this one trespass of Adam, we are thinking of the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And by the way, that means that Adam was a real literal person because here in Romans 5.18, what's being uh, compared here is Adam's being compared and contrasted with Christ. Now, the New Testament and scholars would take Romans 5 to be saying that Paul is presenting Christ as a, as a real, literal, flesh and blood historical person. So on the flip side, Adam is being also uh, being, being taught here as a real historical flesh and blood person. There is a historical Adam here. It's not just a fiction or a metaphor. There's a literal Adam going on here. There's other stuff going around that, but I'll just settle on that. Now, Adam sinned after he did his first sin through his entire life, but the most significant sin of his entire life was when he ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, and he rebelled against God to his face. That was, that was the, the most horrendous sin of his entire life. That started everything to go downhill, quite literally. Christ, in contrast, obeyed the Father perfectly in thought, word, and deed, 100%. He was willing to die. That's how obedient he was to the will of the Father. He was willing to die for all of our sins, to suffer in a way that we'll never even understand when we're worshiping God in heaven for billions of years. We'll never understand the amount of depth and suffering he experienced. So Jesus' whole life is perfect and wonderful, never any sin, never any mistakes. But the one act that highlighted how righteous and obedient was him Submitting to the will of the Father and taking on the wrath of God. Being separated in fellowship from God. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, was, that showed how far he was willing to take it to be obedient to the will of the Father. And that's why it talks about one act of sin and one uh, act of obedience. Obviously, Adam sinned a lot more than just that one act. And obviously Christ did a lot more good than just that one act of going to the cross. But those acts highlight how sinful Adam is and how obedient on the flip side Jesus is. So the only way, though, that you and I are ever going to get righteous, according to Romans 5.18, the only way is through the obedience and righteousness of Christ. You cannot get righteous from the inside because you and I, as I've already indicated, we fail to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We do. Anybody who has to go into like in, into traffic in rush hour, you know your thoughts are not pure <laughs> at all, 
right? Anybody who has to deal with kids for eight hours a day and they're ruining everything and they're laying on the ground, they're pooping their pants. I'm sorry, you're not loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength there. You're losing your patience because you're a human being and you're fallen just like I am. We're all that way. And so the only hope we have to get righteousness is outside of us, legally in the person and work of Christ, who obeyed the Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. So when we trust in Jesus, we're not receiving our own righteousness. We're receiving an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us. It's not from us because we didn't earn it, but it's outside of us because Jesus earned it and merited it for us in our place. Now, the next passage of Romans, it talks, about, uh, it, uh, it talks about this very clearly, that it was the obedience of Christ which grants us obedience. But I want to share just a few other passages with you, just how clear and how abundant this is taught in the New Testament. This is a centerpiece of the gospel, not just Jesus dying on the cross for all of our sins, but him being righteous for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31 and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, also righteousness and sanctification, redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You're only boasting in Jesus because he's the one that did it all for you. You can't even try to boast in yourself. It's his righteousness becomes our own through receiving it in faith. And so Paul goes on to teach that on the cross... It's not just we have our sins forgiven. There's a greater transaction going on. On the cross, Jesus gets our sin, and we, we really get a good deal out of this. We get his righteousness. This is Jesus got ripped off and we are blessed because he sacrificed for us, for, for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin. So the Father made Jesus to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so Jesus didn't actually sin, but he, but he was treated as sinful because he took our sin on the cross. So that in him, we might become the righteousness, my translation of the Greek, the righteousness from God. So it's, we receive a righteous status from God. Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. And so he's transferred, you know, in Adam, we're transferred Adam's sin. And then at the, in the final result, Jesus gets Adam's sin and our sin on the cross. And so in the end, Jesus is the one who suffers and gets all of this. And we get, what do we get in return? We get his righteousness. And that means, that means right now, as we are here, you can know if you're going to heaven by having faith in him. Because if you trust in Jesus, you get his merit and righteousness. It's not your righteousness, so you can't lose it. If it were based on you, you would lose your salvation. You would, your, you would lose your righteousness. But if it's based on Christ, you're never losing anything. It's based on him, not you. And so you have grace on top of grace. It's all based on Jesus, not on you. So you can never lose it. And uh, Romans 5.19 really sinks in this idea of the obedience of Christ is what makes us obedient before God. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's Adam's disobedience. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Christ's obedience here. So the perfect obedience of Jesus is given to us. His whole life, his whole obedient life 
is credited to our account. He was actively obedient. That's what this refers to, the act of obedience. So Christ actively obeyed the will of the Father, heart, soul, and mind, everything, and that we receive that active obedience, and that's what gets us saved. Now, something I want to address here uh, that a lot of pastors address and bring up in Romans 5, scholars discuss it, many leather-bound books, you know how it goes. Big thing here is that Paul in Romans 5, we've seen it consistently, says all and many. Now, some people have said, okay, you know, you have no problem applying that to Adam because everybody dies, everybody sins. Everybody dies, everybody sins. So there's no issue there at all. But not everybody's going to heaven, people will say. And so why does, why does the passage say all receive this eternal life and righteousness? Many receive this work of Christ. And so, yeah, just to remind you guys, I'll read verse 18 to show you how people interpret this in certain ways. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. So all men are being used. It's the same Greek words there. Same exact. There's no, there's no difference here. So what so a minority of theologians have tried to say, and it's not very many, but they try to use this text to say every single person is going to heaven. The idea that universalism is true, that there is no hell because everybody's going to heaven. There is no eternal punishment. There's no condemnation. This was actually popular by a, a thinker that probably nobody knows, but he used to be popular. Like, actually, oh my gosh, time flies. Like almost 100 years ago. Is the 1930s? Yeah, Karl Barth. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but definitely been deceased for quite some time. But, <laughs> but the reason what he says here is that all and many means everybody's going to heaven. And the reason why uh, most scholars don't think that and why the Christian church has never held to universalism is because, one, well, the church has never taught that for thousands of years. It's taught that there's a heaven and a hell. Pretty common Christian belief there. And so most scholars don't think of it for that reason. But the main reason that matters to us as Bible-believing Christians is that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10 teaches hell. He doesn't teach that every single person is going to heaven. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. And to grant relief to, to, to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't sound like everybody's going to heaven right there when it says it like that. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. The majority use of that Greek word throughout the New Testament is forever and ever. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. So those who believe are receiving the salvation here. And so we know, yeah, that not every single person in the world is going to receive the benefits of Jesus Christ. And uh, that view, by the way, has never really made any sense to me. I mean, you just imagine people like some terror. I mean, 
I try to watch like uh, these serial killer shows. This sounds so bad from the pulpit. I'm just saying it aloud. You know, you watch those shows on like Netflix, you know, true crime stuff. And like, you know, if I, I had to stop watching them because when I watch them, I couldn't go to sleep, right? The people in those documentaries can be so horrifying. You're like, oh man, I'm like, I'm like thinking about this. I can't go to sleep. It like haunts my soul in so many ways. And so, you know, there's people like that that just, that just hurt people and cause harm to other people and they never feel bad about it. And they never receive the gift of Christ and people like Hitler. I mean, I hate to throw out the H-bomb here, but I mean, Hitler, you know, he was a pretty bad guy and he'd never showed any signs of remorse and grace. And so we're saying that a person like that who never repents or trusts in Christ, never receives the grace of God, a person like that is going to be in the beautiful, infinite, holy presence of God. Yeah, that never made any sense. Doesn't make any sense. And so Paul has made it clear here, yeah, and, and even Romans 5, he's made it clear. Hey, it's those who receive this grace as a gift that actually get it. They don't earn it. So if you don't receive the, the gift, you're not getting it. That's the idea. But then, then people ask, okay, but Nate, you've not really dealt with this very carefully. Why does Paul parallel the terms many and all with Adam. You still, I still haven't explained that, and I'm going to explain it in a second. He's, the problem is he's, he, he's, he has no problem contrasting uh, Adam and Christ. So why is he not contrasting here? Why does he say many, and why does he say some? Because there's a Greek word to, to indicate that, many and some. Why doesn't he do that? And to answer the question, the reason why Paul uses words like all and many is to indicate a very large portion of the human race get salvation. They get saved. The work of Christ is applied to them. And as I have said before in previous sermons, uh, the Bible does teach universal infant salvation. And I think this helps explain this. It teaches universal salvation, the view that babies who are cognitively unable or anybody who's cognitively unable to receive the grace gets the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus. So when they pass on, they go to heaven. So that's a large, as we saw from the series on infant salvation, that's a large portion of the population from what they're able to calculate there. But if you look in the Bible, you actually see that the kingdom of God is going to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. It's a growing kingdom, not a shrinking kingdom. And I talk to some Christians and they think everything's just shrinking. It's all, you know, it's a doomsday, you know, failure pile and a sadness pile. Everything's just shrinking, 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 shrinking. But you read the Bible, it's something's different here. You read Matthew 13, 31. It says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds. So Christianity started a little, little tiny thing. But when it, has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. Not just some of the garden plants, all of them. It's huge, it's massive, and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest on its branches. Very clear passage there. So Jesus and the authors of the New Testament envisioned the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, get that confused, the kingdom of God growing larger than anything else. All the other garden plants. Jesus tells us, as he put it. And so when Paul uses the terms all and many, it's an indication that tons of people are going to be saved. Not just a few people. Paul isn't communicating this idea that Christianity is some country club where you have a few special people that get in and everybody else is excluded. Well, anybody can figure that that's not the case. Christianity is the largest world religion right now. 
and it, it continues to grow fast the human population. And so rather, salvation is not an exclusion, but it's more of an inclusion of most people. And there, of course, will be some excluded than we've read from the words of Paul. It's very clear. This is why the Bible uses heavily cosmic language to describe the salvation of people. God so loved the world. Not a few select chosen people, right? It says he's the savior of the world in John. It says he takes away the sins of the world. So this cosmic language of the Bible that we see all throughout, it doesn't make sense of a few select people going to heaven and everybody else just going to hell. And that's the point that Paul is trying to stress here in Romans 5 is that the work of Christ is better is greater than the work of Adam. The work of Jesus is far more powerful than the work of Adam. Paul is trying to stress and communicate that, that, that Adam's ability, Jesus' Jesus's ability to, to, to fix things is way better than Adam's ability to mess things up. And so far more people are going to get the reversal of the work of Christ. The work of Christ is going to be forever effective on them than the work of Adam. The work of Christ is better, more powerful than Adam's work can ever be. And of course, that's true because Jesus is God. So you would expect his work to be more pungent than, say, Adam's work. And that is a great hope, is that righteousness and the perfect obedience of Jesus is granted to the world. God so loved the world, not hated it, not a few select people, but he loves the world. And lastly, Paul closes this chapter five, and we're going to look at it more because these words are just so cool and so amazing. Like every time I just, I read these words, like they're such a comfort to me personally. But verse 20, it says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. People think if you just hit the law every single Sunday, you tell people to do things, they're going to be good. Yeah, right. Well, it increases trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So contrary to popular opinion, the law does not make us good. It makes us bad. And we know this. I'm going to prove it to you. How many of you in here, when you came into Corner Canyon Church, you decided to go and touch the walls? You're like, I'm going to touch the walls here. Look, I'm touching it. I'm touching it. I don't see any hands, but we usually don't see hands anyway, so maybe it doesn't prove too much. But no one did that, and I know none of you did. I, if, I, if I saw like, you know, one of you just like touching the wall, I'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> Something interesting going on here, you know? But if I put a wet paint sign on there, you'd be like, I touched the wall. You'd never do that if I didn't put the wet paint sign on there, right? And so the fact that we don't go around into like businesses and churches and schools and hospitals and supermarkets touching walls is evidence that once they put a wet, I mean, I was in a movie theater once and they had a wet paint sign and I, I touched it. No one's looking. I was even a pastor there. I was like touching. I was like, I want to see if it's done yet. You want to see, you know? So it doesn't make you good. The law makes us want to do the opposite. It makes us want to sin. And so as our sin increases, grace increases. Grace kind of matches our sin. So whatever horrible sins you have done in your life, it doesn't mean that God will stop loving you. That just means that God's grace for you increases more and more and more. More sin, more grace is what the text says. Very clear. The more you sin, the more grace you cannot. You, the more grace you get, so that you cannot outsin the coverage of God's grace. It's like the best news ever. Because of the gospel, 
I mean, this is what the gospel is. This is the deep down truth. It means that you are far more messed up and screwed up than you could ever imagine. But that in Christ, you are far more loved and accepted and cherished than you could ever dream. Because when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, the merit and obedience, the blood-bought merit and obedience of Jesus Christ. That is how, if you trust in Jesus, that is how God views you this morning. God knows we are sinful. He knows it. He's not like God knows everything. He's not like, oh, I forgot they're sinful. But he chooses. He chooses to view us through the lens and the prism, the merits of Christ. That's how he chooses to view you this morning. He chooses to treat and act as if you have never sinned at all. And that we have obeyed everything perfectly. His perfect act of obedience. You are clothed this morning in an unlosable, impenetrable armor of righteousness. No accusation brought before you will ever break that armor. It will never stick before God. So you never have to worry. That's, you never have to be afraid of God, afraid of dying and afraid of being worthy because Jesus was already worthy for you. The gospel means practically no anxiety, no fear, no worrying, no stress, not worrying about death. It means peace and rest because Jesus has done everything for you. Now, people think this. First thing they think is, well, that means we're going to Vegas. You know, we're going to sin it up, right? Cause some trouble because I get more grace if I get to sin, you know. That's how people process this sometimes. But I can tell you from my own personal life and experience that it couldn't be more opposite of the truth. The more I understand how much God loves me, what he has done for me, his grace for me, that makes me want to love and follow him even more. As John says in, in uh, the epistle of John, we love because he first loved us. And that's why we receive the gift of grace. We, because we'll just love Jesus more as a result of that. I love the way that Ralph Ernskin put it. He says, a believer kills sin because God loves him. But the legalist, that God may love him. The believer kills sin because God loves him, but the legalist that God may love him. So it's just all this conditional love. And that's not a perfect love, and God's perfect. He has a perfect love for us. I think men like Paul, who were gripped by the grace of God, they didn't want to like live it up and go to Vegas, or in that time it was more like Corinth. It was kind of like Vegas uh, at that time. So I guess they didn't want to go to Corinth. You know, No, what, 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 and he only went to Corinth to preach the gospel, so there's that. But men like, like Paul, like he didn't go out and party it out in Corinth. No, he ended up dying for his faith. He didn't party it up because he had grace. He realized how deep and how vast the love of God was, and it made him sacrifice everything, not party it up. I think a great modern example of someone who's been profoundly gripped by God's grace, amazing grace, is a man, J. Gresham Machen, This guy uh, came, is, uh, and then he was in the uh, 1900s. He came from a very, very, very rich and wealthy family. But he chose to, to use his life, dedicate his life to studying the Bible, to training and teaching pastors, to preaching, 
to starting more godly denominations that taught scripture and God's word. He spent all of his time doing that. He was so dedicated that he preached in North Dakota. You couldn't pay me enough to preach in North Dakota. No, I'm just kidding. If you like North Dakota, don't throw rocks at me. Um, <laughs> I mean, he went and preached in North Dakota, spreading the gospel, defending God's truth to, to, to help churches come to a more biblical understanding. He re relentlessly spread the gospel, relentlessly defended the Bible as God's infallible source for us today. But you see, he did it with such passion, he couldn't stop himself. So he started developing a cold out there in North Dakota, as many people tend to. It's cold. He caught pneumonia, but he kept on preaching. It's not like, well, I got to rest here, take it easy. No, he, the grace, he was so gripped by God's grace, he kept on preaching. And, and as what happens when you don't rest with pneumonia, you get worse and worse. And so he had to be hospitalized. This guy is crazy about Jesus. And so, what's so amazing is he realized he was dying. And so he wrote his last words in a telegram shows you how old this is, to a friend and professor, John Murray. This is a guy who spent his entire life serving God. But he says this in his last words, I'm so, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. He died shortly after that. So this is a man who's done all these things for God, preaching until he's nearly dead. But the only thing he realized as he was dying is he could never earn or merit God's love for him. Only Jesus did that for him. And something I've experienced as a pastor other pastors I know have experienced that I've heard many stories, but we deal people at the end of their lives, people who are older. Some people in many cases are in their deathbeds and they're at their final moments, they're gonna die. And many of these people I would consider to be profoundly godly people that I look up to and people who I really would say have a, t a strong, you know, just amazing testimony of their faith in Jesus and very godly people. But, you know, at the end of their lives, it's amazing just how death wakes you up to things that you kind of hide, we kind of bury, and how honest and how aware they are of certain things at the end of their lives. I've heard of pastors saying, a man who didn't do anything, you know, had, you know, was a good pastor, did nothing wrong, at the end of his life, he asked his wife, you know, did I do enough? I've heard most godly men say at the end of their life, how could a God love a sinner like me? Because, you know, at death, all the rationalizations, all the stuff we tell ourselves, it's, it's, it's game time. It's over. It's time to be honest. And the games we play every day, we can't play those anymore when you're about to meet God. You, cannot, you, you, you can't hide anymore. It's about to happen. And deep down inside, when that happens, we all realize we're not good enough. And the only thing I can say to someone in a situation like that is, yes, you're right. You're not good enough. But Jesus was good enough for you. He was worthy for you. So yes, you're a sinner. But Jesus died for sinners. He earned everything for you. It is finished. And as long as you trust in him, you never have to worry ever again. So that Jesus is our only hope that you are going to heaven. It's Jesus. 
I love how one pastor put it. Rest assured before God, the righteousness of Christ is all we need. Before God, the righteousness of Christ is all we have. It's our only lifeline is Jesus and him alone. May he be glorified. Let us pray.